All right, good morning. Let's take our Bibles. Let's head to our seats. I want to say, obviously, thank you to all of you for making time to be here this morning. It's important for us to get to gather together and to share um, in, in uh, worshiping together, but encouraging each other. And uh, like, like Josh said so well, it's so important that we get the chance to share with each other what Jesus is doing. Last week, if you remember, we were looking at the concept that comes out of Romans chapter 8. Obviously, we looked at a couple other passages as well, but the, the idea was the, the question, do you have an orphan's mindset when it comes to how you relate to God the Father, or do you have an adopted child's mindset? And we, we kind of pursued that, and uh, we won't re-preach that again, obviously, today, but I was going through thinking through, okay, how do we really grow? As we go into this new year, I know everybody's supposed to do a sermon today on, on having 2020 vision, right, Scott? That's, the, that's supposed to be the sermon for today. We're not going there. Um, just to make it easier on everybody, because then you can listen to all the other podcasts of everybody else who does that one. But um, what I wanted to look at today was to say, how, what's one step, what's one major ingredient that really helps us be able to grow as disciples uh, to be able to um, grow in our, in our knowledge and love for Jesus in every area of our life. So I wanted to look at that because that's going to be one of the ways that God addresses the orphan mindset. Adam and Eve, just to draw the picture, when they were in the garden before Genesis chapter 3, they walked with God, they talked with God, they trusted God, they knew God, they recognized that He was always going to be the one who took care of them and watched out for them. That's the adopted mindset. They really believed at that point that there was nothing that their Heavenly Father would do that would ever be negative to them. What broke that? It was their sin. And when they sinned, what happened all of a sudden, they began to act like God was suspicious. They began to say, we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to make clothes for ourselves. God didn't make clothes for us. We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to kind of gather things for ourselves. Because what happens when I am left all on my own, when I have no one else to help me? That's the orphan kind of mindset. That is very natural because... You and I, we were born with a sin nature. We were born as enemies of God. We need help in this. So what I want to look at today is this concept. I want to give you three realities of discipleship. I'm not saying that this is all of discipleship, but I am going to say that this is probably one of the most uh, important areas for, for many of us, especially growing up in New England. So that's why I want to look at this. So let's turn to Acts chapter 13. And I want to look at, uh, beginning at, at verses 1 through 3, some weeks, um, we will, most weeks, we will major on uh, a step-by-step -step analytical study of God's Word, because if we, if we get there, the elders have talked about it and said, hey, if we get to heaven and God says, you know, you kind of gave me a little too much credit. We figure we'd rather be on that side of it than to sit there and say, God, sit there and say, you know what, you took a little extra credit for all the stuff that you did there. So, 
So that's it. This week is a little bit of a different because this week is more of an application. I want to help us draw a picture of what we've seen so far in Romans 1 through where we are in 8. Okay, So the idea here is it's going to be stretching. If you hear me well, this should probably be a little bit stretching. I hope that you would sit there and take this biblically and breathe and sit there and go, man, but is, there, is that not what I really wish that I had in my life? So, so those, are two of the, those are two of the reactions that I would hope that you would, would expect. So let's, let's start out this way. These three uh, realities of discipleship. We're going to use two biblical pictures to help us with this. The first one, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, Here's why I think this is important for us to see. Barnabas and Saul get sent out on their very first missionary journey. This was a huge stretch. Not only was it a huge stretch to go on a missions trip, like going to Egypt or somewhere else like that. How many people have had a chance to be on some sort of a short-term missions trip before? So a lot of you know kind of what that, what that feels like, right? Not only was it that, but think about this. These guys had grown up in a Jewish society that told them that the worst thing that you could do would have to be to eat with or even talk with or associate with a Gentile. It was unclean. It was stretching. And yet, where were they headed? They were sent by the Spirit of God to bring the good news about Jesus into all of the world. So think about how radical this trip was. This was a really stretching trip. And when they went out, we know that, according to verse 5, they had John along with them to assist them. Here's where I want to go with this. The team sailed about 60 miles. They went southwest to Cyprus. And then uh, that first missionary journey would bring um, them up to the island of Paphos, And then they headed northwest to Perga in the province of Pamphylia. Luke adds a surprising statement in verse 13. So if you look at verse 13, I want you to see this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So what happened here? We don't know. Paul and Barnabas are traveling. John is with them. Suddenly, when they get to this leg, suddenly John leaves. And that's really all the information that we're given at this point. We do know a little bit more information that comes in chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. And we find out that this was not just that, you know, they didn't have enough seats in the boat or that John, um, you know, felt called maybe to something else. This was a problem. John suddenly left. He quit. And it was so big of a deal 
that later on in chapter 15, we find out that between Barnabas and Paul, this becomes a major rift, and it actually changes their relationship. So here's what I want to kind of point out. The first reality of discipleship is this. Mission will squeeze you, and the junk will come out. Mission will squeeze you, and your junk, the junk of your life, the things that are happening, the things that maybe you're aware of or things that you're not aware of, will come out. I don't know what happened with John here. Nobody does except for God and John. (laughs) Obviously, probably Paul and Barnabas were close into this conversation. But today, we're not given the information. But I can tell you this. If you and I decide, by the grace of God, like we ought to decide, that we are called to be missionaries and that we are called to be servants, and let me also include that we are called to be family. If we try to do that, and God's called us to do that. God has called us to be those things, all of us. If we do that, the junk in our lives will come out. Again, I don't know how they handled it. I don't know what happened in this case. But I do know that uh, Barnabas looked at John and he said, John is worth continued discipleship. Paul didn't agree. But John did. And I just want to remind you that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this, Get Mark, John Mark, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. So there was this thing that happened. There was this thing that happened that totally rewrote John Mark's life in the middle of this. And the result was John Mark quit the missions trip that he was on and left because when we are on Jesus' mission, when we are uh, trying to serve others, something is going to happen. Something's going to come up. I'm going to tell a story in a little bit, and I think we'll kind of draw some of these things together, okay? But I want you to understand, God has called you. He's called every single one of us to live as missionaries. He's called every single one of us to live as servants in our community. He's called every single one of us to live like family. But the bottom line is, when we do those things, as we do those things, part of God's design is actually to bring to the surface some of these areas that we struggle with. So Caitlin might be in Egypt, okay? I just got her eyes just light up, right? You know, you love being a pastor's daughter because you only once in a while get to be an illustration, right? So, um, but, but while she's there, imagine the people on her team. Have you ever been on a missions trip? And did you find that there were some adverse circumstances while you were on your trip? Anybody? I know the trips that I've been on, there have been. Have there ever been not just adverse circumstances, but have you ever seen actual difficulties between the people that were on that trip? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know some of you have experienced that because adverse circumstances tends to make my life difficult 
and you make my life difficult too. And when you make my life difficult, and it's 110 degrees every day, suddenly what's inside of me, it comes out. The question is, is, did God know that would happen? I want to assure you, yes. And is God actually causing that for your good? Yes. So reality number one is that mission will squeeze you and, your, and the junk will come out of your life. Okay. Reality number two is this. It's a lot easier to cover up brokenness than it is to restore it. It's a lot easier to cover up brokenness than it is to actually restore it. It's easier to put on a facade. It's easier to go on and, and, and do this. So let's use an illustration. I'm not, gonna, I'm not picking on them, but I just want to take something that came out of the news, right? The Pope. We all probably heard on the news about what happened recently. What happened? As he's going around greeting someone, someone grabbed his hand and wouldn't let go. And what was his reaction? He slapped her in, in the hand, you know, not, not anything else like that, if you didn't see the video. And then the Pope went on, and actually I think it was a really good apology later. But what happened? Doing ministry squeezed him, and the junk came out. The second reality, though, is it's a lot easier to cover up brokenness than it is to restore it. It's easy for us to sit there and say, well, I'll just make sure that I never appear angry again. I'll just make sure that I never let that happen again. I'll build in, like, rules into my life. I'll build in systems. I'll make sure that I don't have to be out for as long. I'll, whatever it is, it's easier to actually cover up brokenness than it is to restore it. So let's turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Like I said, we don't get to see with, um, with Paul and Barnabas and with John Mark what exactly happens or what the conversation sounds like. We do, in Galatians chapter 2, get a little better of a picture of what this conversation sounds like. So Galatians chapter 2, to give you the, the insight here, is um, the Apostle Paul is sharing a story about how he went um, to Antioch. And um, he's going to tell this story. He says, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, so chapter 2, verse 11, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, he's going to describe what's happening in the circumstance. For certain men came from James, and he, uh, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In other words, he understood that the gospel was for everyone until prestigious people came. And when prestigious people came, he became afraid. His need for their approval overrode his understanding of the gospel. So he began to pull back from eating with the Gentiles. And when he did that, that might seem like a small thing to us, but what he was telling them was something that was exactly the opposite 
of what the gospel conclusions were. His theology was twisted. And what he was teaching through that theology was twisted. It goes on and it says, The rest of the Jews began to act hypocritically, verse 13, along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he goes on to explain the theology in this. Here's what I want to say. Like we said, if while we're on mission together, stuff gets squeezed out of our life. We, we use the term here quite often, the rock of our life gets flipped over and the stuff that's under it becomes apparent. No one's looking to it. No one's digging for it. No one's trying to find dirt on anybody else's life here. But God tends to flip the rock over. It's a lot easier for us to cover that reality, number two, to recover brokenness than it is to restore it. What I want you to understand is God's means of restoration is actually the others that are in your life who are committed to bringing your brokenness out into the open and bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on it. Now, that's where I'm saying that life gets really uncomfortable. Because it's one thing for me to know what my own brokenness is. It's one thing for me to sit there and say, all right, I know that I've got an issue with this. I know I struggle with this sin, but let's just cover it up. Let's just keep it quiet. I'll find a way to fix this at some point. There's a day where I will finally be done with this. But then somebody else comes to you and says, hey, I noticed something in your life. Now, this isn't the just general critic, right? This isn't just, you know, the person who loves to point out your failings or faults. This is somebody you love, somebody you care about. And they say, hey, you know, at dinner the other night, while we were sharing time together, you kind of snapped at your wife or your kids. What's going on with that? Now, again, I know we're New Englanders, so we don't ask questions like that, do we? Right? We don't pry. But one of our other terms here is that we need to be intentionally intrusive. We need people who are intentionally intrusive in our lives, people who will ask questions, people who will notice things. Now, I'm going to give a warning on this later, so we'll come back to that. But I just want you to know God's means, the way that he wants to actually restore rather than cover your brokenness, the way that he wants to actually bring health to that area by bringing you to Jesus is going to be through People that love you and know you and invest in your life. This is why groups here are so important. That's why Sunday mornings are necessary. You know, I'm so grateful for all of you uh, coming out today and, and making the effort. I know it took extra effort to be here. But we also just admit right up front, Sunday mornings will never do the whole job. We need relationships. It's been the drum we've been banging for the last 17 years. 
we need to be in close relationship. We need to do ministry. The worst thing somebody could walk away with is say, okay, well, let's just make sure that we don't do ministry. Let's make sure we don't do service. Let's make sure we're not living on mission. That way, none of this stuff comes out. I don't have to deal with it, and you don't have to see it, all right? Instead, we need people like this. So uh, Jeff Vanderstelt wrote a book uh, that I read a couple years ago called Saturate. And uh, I've, I've had a great chance to sit with Jeff and talk with him. And he's been a real encouragement to us as a, as a church. He's out in Tacoma area of Washington, now in, in uh, uh, I think he's in Seattle. And, um, you know, so, so you know, but, but he wrote this. And, and I, I wanted to share a couple of things from the book today because honestly, it makes it a little easier to be able to show you what this looks like, okay? But he said this, If we are to be disciples of Jesus who are being reformed and restored to become more like Him, we need to have people in our lives up close and personal. We need people who can see where we do or do not yet believe the truth about Jesus and what He's done for us. Then, when the layers are pulled back, we need people to speak the truth of the gospel to our needs. Sometimes we just need a reminder of what we already know, but we've forgotten. And sometimes we need a bit of new information about Jesus. And there are times when we need a direct rebuke. Amen? I mean, that's what's happening here, isn't it? Paul comes into this and says, Peter needs a direct rebuke. It's not always the way that it gets done. So let me illustrate this. And the, the reason I wanted to do it this way, I wanted to tell, say, Jeff's story with Randy. Um, because I can't tell my stories with you, right? If I talk about the conversations that I've had or that I know, then, then somebody sits there and feels self-conscious about it. So it's easier to tell you Jeff's story about Randy because I've met Jeff and I've met Randy, but I don't know if you guys have, so that's no big deal, Right. So this is what Jeff put in the book, and I just wanted to share with you. Uh, they were painting Jeff's house. Now, it's a 100-year-old house out in, in the Tacoma area, and they decided that they were kind of picking at the siding one day, and they found out that this 100-year-old house, someone had put up like a, another siding on top of the sides of it. When he picked away, he found out that there was this whole other layer, the original, the real, and they had covered it up. Because why? It's much easier to cover up than it is to restore, right? Some of you guys who do construction and do these kind of trades know what that's really like. They wanted to restore the original look of the home, which had been covered all those years before. Now, Randy was part of their missional community. He was kind of newer to the group. He was a former Army Ranger platoon leader, and he had served three tours of duty. Jeff is a very optimistic guy. And he said, well, instead of paying somebody, I should get the people from my MC to come and help me do this project. His wife said, his wife said, that's too much to ask. You really shouldn't ask people that much. But Jeff said, oh, they won't mind. They'd love it. We'll get to work together. We'll do this project. So he did. And what did the people in his MC say? Yes. They all said they would be there, that they would be excited about this project. And they all showed up at first. But what happens? Over time, schedules start to overwhelm. And that's what happened in this situation. But Randy 
was the kind of guy who said, when I tell you I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. So Randy was there. Randy showed up, and he was out there working, and he was out there working, he was out there working. And one day he was out there working by himself. Jeff wasn't even there, and Jeff came home and, and found him out there. And um, when he comes around the corner, Randy says, I'm so mad right now. So Jeff says, why? Randy says, no one showed up today. No one showed up to help. Now, let me ask you this question real quickly. You come around. You've got this guy who's been the only guy who's really been helping you work on this project. And he's really upset like this. How would you respond? It's easy to sit there and think, okay, what I'm going to do is try and diffuse this. I'm going to say, you know what, dude, why don't you take the day? You've been working too hard. I'll finish this myself. I think that would be the standard kind of New England. For, for most of us, that would be the standard answer. But I want you to see how the conversation unfolded. And I'm just going to read it to you. Jeff's response to him was, when he said, I'm so mad, he said, but why does that make you so mad that nobody showed up today? that nobody else is here. And Randy replied, because I'm all alone. So why does that bother you so much, I continued, peeling back the layers a little bit more. Because they said they would be here, and they're not here. So you're angry because they didn't keep their word, I asked? By asking him to clarify, I was inviting him to join me in actually peeling back the layers on his life. Well, I don't think that's it, he says. Well, what is it then? I wanted to get to the heart of Randy's anger, the layer below the layer. Well, I'm all alone out here. I know. Why is that a problem? Why are you angry about doing something alone that you already agreed to? Well, we were getting there, he says, getting to his heart. The broken part of Randy was about to be exposed so that he could be reformed and restored. I guess I'm angry because no one knows. No one is aware. I'm not getting noticed, and I'm angry about that. Jeff finishes it by saying this. The facade was removed. Randy's heart had been revealed, and his need for Jesus was clear. Instead of simply saying, wow, Randy, nobody else works like you. I'm so thankful for you. It's so great that you do this. You should just take the day off. Don't worry, I'll finish the project myself. Jeff was willing to be intentionally intrusive and to actually ask questions into Randy's life and not just let him off with the I don't know answer because that's usually the first answer. Why are you upset? I don't know. I don't know, pretty much means back off, man. Okay, that's Greek. Uh, if you need your first Greek lesson, back off. Leave me alone. Or, or maybe I just throw something. And then everybody, what do they do? They get to learn. Back off. Just don't come near me. But what do we need? We need people. We need close relationships. We need people who know us. People who will be intentionally intrusive in our lives to help us. So, reality number three, like we talked about, reality number one, 
was the idea that uh, mission will squeeze you and the junk will come out. Reality number two, it's a lot easier to cover up brokenness than it is to restore it. But reality number three is one key role of discipleship is walking others towards Jesus. Walking others. Walking our spouse towards Jesus. Walking our sibling, a brother or sister. And again, how old do you have to be able to do this? Not very old, guys. This is not just for grown-ups. Will we go in with the intentionality to walk someone else toward Jesus? Can you do this with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus yet? Yes, you can. Sometimes we'll talk about how we can disciple non-believers. This is the way. This is what I'm talking about when we talk about that term, okay? A couple of things to think about when it comes to that, that, uh, again, that reality three, one key role of discipleship is walking others towards Jesus. Number one, this will rarely, I was going to write the word never, but I'm going to put the word rarely be convenient. In other words, if you prioritize your time or if you prioritize the project, how would Randy's, how would the story between Jeff and Randy be different? If Jeff was all about getting the project done, how would the story be different? be incredibly different. But if we're actually going to walk with people, we're just going to have to give up a little bit of our time efficient, efficiency. We're going to have to give up a little bit of our productivity. We're going to have to stop. And we're going to have to be able to, to know how to fit this in. I remember obviously getting to do this a lot with our kids. Right? Caitlin, you get a double one today. Sorry. Again, I have not used the Caitlin illustration in a long time. I try not to bring my kids into this stuff very often, but I was just thinking through. When they were really young, they were riding in the back of the car, and we had gone to the dent, no, to the doctor's office. And when they went to the doctor's office, they got a sticker. Okay, any parents ever have this kind of thing? There's a bucket. You get to pick a sticker. Well, I don't remember what he did, but somehow Mark got Caitlin mad in the back seat of the car. And I think they were like four and two. I mean, it was like five and three. They were pretty young. I think it was like four and two because Caitlin was very young. She got mad at him. So you know what she did? She took his sticker and she crumpled it up and ripped it. Now, that was not on my agenda that day to deal with. I was not really sitting there going, oh, yeah, we've gone to the doctor's office. We spent all this time getting people in and out of cars and through doctor's offices. I just want to get home and get them lunch. But that was the door to sit there and and say to Caitlin, why did you do that? Now, Can you do this with a four-year-old heart? Yes. Will it make you more productive? No, having kids won't make you more productive, okay? Let's just be honest about that. You're getting nothing done until they're at least 17, all right? So sorry, Emily, you know, but I mean, it's a great work. It's really valuable. But to sit and draw out her heart to try and understand and then try to walk her heart towards Jesus. It's going to ruin your date night at some point, okay? Because you're going to think, 
let's just have this really nice romantic dinner. Let's just enjoy our time together. But at some point, something's going to come up and we're going to have to decide, is this about my comfort? Is this about my productivity? Is this about getting my schedule done? Or is this a God-given opportunity to get to walk my spouse or my date towards Jesus? This will rarely be convenient time-wise. Second thing, this is the warning I told you I was going to mention. Guys, I'm not calling for us to be like constantly spiritually navel-gazing, constantly looking around going, you know what, you know, uh, boy, Scott seemed really frustrated when he's putting his shoes on today. I got to talk to him because, man, his spirit must really be out of line. This isn't one where you kind of look at it and say, hey, you're wearing red today. You know, isn't that the color of sin? I don't know. You make up the, some of the stupid things that people have come and said to you, okay? Things that people who are too controlling, people who are, are just being, um, they're, they're not actually concerned about you. So we're not talking about that. This flows out of someone who loves you more than they love themselves. So much so that they're willing to rearrange their time priorities to care for you. So, so this shouldn't happen every day, right? What are we doing? Instead, we're sitting there going to the Spirit. When we see something, there's threat levels, okay? When you look at this and you go, hey, I just saw this in my friend's life, and, and he seems kind of angry or upset. It's kind of at this level. We sit there and go, I should pay attention to that. I should look at that. I should just watch for that, see if this is a trend or see if this is just a bad day because we have bad days very you know very bad whatever the the book title was book you know days we have those types of days right the no good very bad you know that kind of thing that might get some of you at least on track with me um but we have those kind of days but then there's the ones where we look at it and we go i see some sort of a pattern and i really believe that god wants me to talk to you about this when it's down here, what do I do? I pray for you. And I keep an eye on you. When it rises to this level, that's when we are willing to inconvenience ourselves and you and ask you to really pay attention to this. So again, clear issues get addressed, right? But, Here's kind of a third thing underneath this reminder that one of the key roles of discipleship is walking others toward Jesus. We must be willing to do this for others and allow them to do it for us. Our membership is built to call each other to this. It's part of what, we're, what is built in there. You're asking, you're saying, I am asking you to do this for me. So let's, let's, let's think about this, because when we say that, I'm asking you to do this for me, how do you respond when those you trust ask questions of your life? You know, do we, do we go into big bear mode, you know, stomp around a little bit and just scare them off, make sure that they know that they are not welcome to look into my life or ask questions? Some people automatically, they jump the defensive and they, they start to pin the, the thing on you. Oh, well, you're the one who does. Is that going to encourage people to be part of your life this way? 
Not at all. So can we go into it every day and say, God, would you allow me to listen to you and to the people around me? Could you actually allow me to be receptive? Because I know that there's areas that you want to work on in my life. And I can't control the way that you're going to work on it. But would you do that? And then the other question is, are you willing to do this for others? Are you willing to do this for your parent? That's a hard job, isn't it? Are, are you willing to do this with um, a teammate? You're in high school. Are you willing to actually challenge a teammate? Um, the bottom line on this is I need to be reminded that the Father did not accept me or love me any less or any more based upon how well I performed while being on mission, while being a servant, while trying to be family. I need you to remind me of this. I really do. And I'm not just using that as an illustration. I have said this for years. I need it. I need you to remind me of that. I need you to remind me that he already loved me perfectly and fully in Jesus, his son. By faith in Jesus, you and I are saved from the need to live a perfect life in order to gain God's approval. You need to be reminded that the Father did not accept you or love you any less based on how well you performed this week on your mission or on your service or on your sense of family. You need to be reminded that he already loves you perfectly and fully in Jesus, his son. And by faith in Jesus, you are saved from the need to live a perfect life to gain God's approval. We need people to act like priests. We talk about the priesthood of believers, right? Which means that every single one of you has the right to go to God and every single one of you has the responsibility before God to bring others there. Because what do priests do? Priests take people who are sinful and broken and they walk them to Jesus. They sit there and say, okay, I hear you. I see this sin in your life. Let me be the person who helps you now get reconnected to God. Dads, this is one of our most important roles. If anybody has maybe the, the lion's share of burden in this, dads, it's our job. It's our calling. It's our need to do this with our kids. We can't pass off that we're, we're busy because, remember, this will never fit well into our time schedules. We probably will never feel like we're really actually ready to do this or that we're fully capable of it. But do we bring people to Jesus? And it goes for all of us. Isn't that what you want, though? Isn't that what you dream of in your life? That if, that if 
Because I know for, it's got to be true for all of us that there's areas of sin that we are well aware of and we would like for others not to really know about. But wouldn't it be awesome to believe that there are people that God has put into our life who would be willing to look and understand that sin and walk us to Jesus? I know that's a heartbeat of yours. As scary as it might be, as intimidating as that sounds, as life-destructing as we, our flesh, would like to imagine that for us, that sits there and goes, if anybody found out about this, your life would be over. There's no way you could survive. There's no way you could feed your family. There's no way that you could possibly do this. Why? Because the flesh, the last thing it wants is for us to get brought to Jesus. But isn't that what you want? And aren't we willing then to do that with others? I'm not saying it's going to make you comfortable. I am saying that you'll become more godly as you, as you love others and do this because you're going to become super dependent on God during that. <laughs> you're going to go from like comfortable, I got my stuff together, to suddenly being like, Jesus, I don't know how to do this. You know, and we've talked about it before, but like my key prayer when I walk into so many situations, God help, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I have no great plan for this. God can you help someone like me? And what's God's answer for that? Yes. Absolutely, unequivocally, every single time, his answer is yes. Because he loves you. 